Our passage this morning comes from the book of Psalms, which is the first and original songbook of God's people. And particularly, we're going to take a look this morning at Psalm 126. It's on page 517 of your pew Bibles, if you turn there. This particular psalm is the seventh of 15, what they call Songs of Ascent. These are pilgrim songs, if you will. They're songs to be sung along the way as we journey up the holy hill to worship God uh, in his temple. And so he gives this to his people. What I love about the Psalms is this, that they, the Psalms have a way of meeting us in the tensions of life. They meet us right where we are, right smack in the middle of everyday life, right in between suffering and hope, right in the middle of all of our need and our hope for of brokenness and healing of God's goodness and suffering. It meets us right there. So I hope this morning as we read this passage, you'll find yourselves in this tension, wrestling with God's word as you hear it read to you. Hear now God's word that comes from Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Lord, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negeb. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Let us pray. Father, you are the God of hope. You're the God who meets us in the middle. You're the God who doesn't shy away from brokenness and pain, but you run right to the middle of it. Help us to see that this morning. Help us by your Holy Spirit to to know your goodness and your grace, we pray. Amen. Growing up in Florida, I had the privilege of going to Disney World occasionally and getting to experience the glory of what Disney World is, the excitement of the roller coasters, the excitement of the rides, the snacks, the souvenirs, the sodas, right, as a kid. You, you know that feeling of, of being there and the excitement of that. The lines don't mean anything to you because you're so distracted by everything around you. There's princesses and princes all around you. Everyone is smiling. Everyone is happy. Everything seems amazing and great. I'd imagine now going as an adult, things would look a little different going to Disney World. Maybe you've recently been with your kids and you've experienced some of this, right? Time goes on and you experience the frustration of lines, the pain of traveling and getting there, the working of logistics, the the expense and cost that it takes. Disney World doesn't seem so magical anymore, huh? seems to wear off. It seems to, to fade. What, what happens? Life, right? Life happens. We experience it all the time. Whether we realize it or not, we're, we're experiencing the daily wear and tear of life through disappointment, 
through abandonment, through loneliness, through our fear, through all of these different things. And they just wear on us. And life doesn't seem so magical anymore. It seems to, to fade. We become cynical, don't we? Our hearts grow cold. They grow faint. We wonder where the joy is. Now, cynicism, as far as I'm talking about it, is this, it's this distrust. It's this distrust in God's goodness, isn't it? We all experience it over time. It's something that just happens to us. We wouldn't necessarily say it out loud, but this is what we experience. Well, here's the thing. In this psalm, we get a great warning. A warning of the danger or the cost of cynicism. Cynicism takes a toll on our hearts. And if we're not watchful, if we're not watching our hearts, it will cost us dearly. So this morning, I hope to talk about the cost of cynicism, and as we move forward, the the call to a hopeful realism, what that looks like. That's where we're going this morning. But first, the cost. What is at stake when our hearts grow cynical? What's at stake? The first thing I think is we see in this passage is that we grow, we lose sight of God's goodness. God's very goodness is at stake with our cynical hearts. What do I mean by this? I don't mean that God's heart is somehow like is dependent upon our emotions and how we feel and our circumstances. No, I'm talking about our hearts and how we feel and how it impacts us and our view of God and who he is. We see that in this passage in the very first verse, it says this, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, it says, We were like people who dreamed. We were like people who dreamed. Israel just experienced this amazing redemption and restoration. Some commentators think that this is uh, God bringing them out of exile, out of the Babylonian exile. Some, some believe that this is just a more generic restoration. But whatever it was, we can be certain of this. It was an amazing rescue. It was so amazing, it felt as if they were dreaming. It felt as though it wasn't real. It was too good to be true. It was shocking, God's grace. It just didn't seem, they couldn't seem to believe it. And it's not like this suffering happened in a vacuum, did it? Like this happened over a long period of time. It's not like they, God rescued them and restored them all of a sudden without anything happening before or after, right? It's, this is something that happened over a gradual period of time. They had to wait. They had to experience suffering. They had to experience the waiting. Something happens to us in that waiting. When you're waiting and you're experiencing the wear and tear of life over and over again, it does something to your heart. It does something to you. It changes you. It changes you. Our hearts grow cold. Out of fear, we keep God at a distance. We say, ah, God, I'm not sure if I can trust you. I'm not sure right now with my current situations and what's going on, my circumstances. I don't know if I can trust you right now. And we hold God out of arm's length. We assume God doesn't care. And of course, we'd never say this out loud, right? We would never, we would never acknowledge that out loud. But if we're honest, we think it. We think it, don't we? 
We know that feeling, do we not? This feeling of distancing God, of growing cold when we are waiting. After miscarriage, after miscarriage, we're waiting. God, when are you going to hear? When are you going to answer? When are you going to show up? When we're praying for our kids, our kids who are in their 20s and college and they don't seem to be walking with the Lord and we're praying and we're praying, we're, God, where, where are you? Are you going to show up? Are you coming? You're waiting for those test results to come in from the doctor. You're waiting. You're waiting. God, do you care? Are you going to answer this? It's going to happen. You go on and on and on the different things that go, we go through in our life that lead us to this conclusion where we wonder. We wonder. Disappointment does this to us, right? It makes our hearts cold and hardened. I, uh, a few years back, was talking to a couple... And they're sharing with me how they came to, to, to know each other and eventually get married. And the girl actually got married. It was, wasn't until much later in life that they got married. It was in their 30s or so. And she was telling me about this story, how it was really difficult for her to trust men. And for good reason. Growing up, she, she had a father who ended up cheating on her mother a man she was dating ended up cheating on her. Wear and tear happened. She began to distrust men. Over time, the Lord would allow, soften her heart and be at work in her heart, and she would begin to put her heart on the line. After much working, and uh, if you hear it from the guy's perspective, he talks about how slow this process was of gaining trust back and gaining trust and love of this girl. And, and he, the time that he spent to, to win her to himself. Eventually, obviously, they would go on to get, to get married. But imagine. Imagine if this girl, this woman, did not put her heart on the line. Imagine if she didn't risk trusting again. I mean, we, could, we don't know what, what it could happen, and obviously she could end up marrying someone else, or something could happen, right? We, or just not get married at all. We don't know. But I would imagine if she didn't put her heart on the line again, if she didn't risk something, she wouldn't be able to experience the intimacy and the closeness that she did through the marriage that she, she did, right? You and I, here's, here's what I'm, tr- I'm trying to get out of this. You and I have to be willing to put our hearts on the line to risk because it's only in risking that we're able to experience the intimacy and closeness with God we have to be willing to trust God why not because he's some broken man but because he is a good God who shows up time and time again right over and over again we have to risk When we don't risk, we deprive ourselves of intimacy and closeness. The second thing I want to talk about with cynicism is this. The cost is that we lose sight of not only God's goodness, but God's glory. God's glory. What do I mean by that? Where do I see this in the passage? Verse 3. Notice here, Israel is worshiping. They're saying, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. This might not seem very significant. But if you look, what happened right before that? The nations acknowledged, because they saw God working in their lives, they acknowledged this redemption, this restoration that happened in their life. And they say, the Lord has done good things for them. Look at this. 
This is amazing. It's only after that that they worship. It's only after that that they acknowledge this is who God is and what he's done. It's only after that that they realize that this is a big deal. Why? Because of the mission of God. From the very beginning, Israel was called to be a people who were to be a blessing to the nations. They were called to be people, what we see in Exodus 19, right before they're receiving the law from God on Mount Sinai. They are told that they've been rescued out of slavery from Egypt. And guess what what God calls them? A kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Why? Why do they do that? To be a priest meant to be someone who intercedes on behalf of God to the people. That's what they were supposed to do. So this means that Israel was meant to be a nation that had this particular relationship with God in which they interceded between God and the nations. What happened here? There's a great reversal. It was backwards. The nations were the one telling and reminding God's people of his love and his goodness and his glory. It was backwards. It was messed up, right? We see this role continuing through the New Testament church when he calls us to be lights and salt in the world, right? This mission going forth, how are we? We're supposed to be visible signposts to God's glory. We're supposed to be pointing to God and what he's done and magnifying that. That's the whole point. That's what we do. That's what we exist to do is to point others to God. And then this mission ends up culminating in Revelation when we see the great multitude gathering of every nation, tongue, language, people, and they worship God. And they say together, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Here's the thing. When Israel stopped being a blessing to the nations, they lost sight of God's glory. God wasn't as beautiful as he once was. The grace that they once experienced had worn off. I was talking to Michael McGee earlier this week, and we were talking about just this idea and this concept, and one of the things he pointed out was how similar this is to uh, Idle Hour to the fireworks during the 4th of July. So him and I, we were acknowledging we're not members of Idle Hour. We, were, uh, we get to, though, however, get to experience the fireworks as outsiders. We get to come. Maybe I'm tattling on myself, and, uh, and I'm ruining something really great for everybody else. In that case, it was some other guy that did this, but um, this was... Right When we get to go there, we get to be there. We didn't pay for the fireworks. We didn't set up the fireworks. We don't have to take down the fireworks. But guess what? We get to go and sit on the golf course, and we get to experience the fireworks. It's a blessing to us as an outsiders. In the same way, you and I are called to be a blessing to the nations. We are called to be a display of hope, of holiness to the world. Why? Because God is more good and glorious than we could ever imagine. And he deserves the glory. And so this is what we're called to be as a people. And so the application for us is this. When we lose sight of God's glory, we lose sight of our mission. We lose sight of what we are called to do. When God is no longer beautiful and wonderful, we stop doing what we were called and created to do. 
But here's, what's the, what's the way forward? Here we are, we've been wrestling with cynicism, we've been wrestling with this idea of our hearts and the danger and the cost, and what is it, what's at stake? What's the way out? What's the way out of our cynicism? How do we move forward? Here's our second point, the call of, to hopeful realism. The psalmist knows that the only cure to a broken and cynical heart is hope. It's grace. It's glory, right? This is what he is. And so he gives us two pictures of, of this hope. He gives it to us in the picture of a flash flood that comes all of a sudden after a long period of drought. And then he gives us another picture of a, picture of a farmer who, who reaps a large harvest after a long period of waiting. These two pictures of hope. Let me tell you first what this is. I don't want to be misunderstood. Let me talk about what this hope is not. This hope that we're talking about, this realistic hope that we're talking about, is not wishy-washy thinking. It isn't some sort of call to put on our rose-covered glasses and to look into the world and to see it. No, 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 no. The psalmist and God confronts the brokenness of this world head-on. He doesn't avoid it. He doesn't shy away from it. He doesn't act like our hard lives are nothing. Some of you guys are going through, some of y'all are going through some very hard and difficult things right now. Very difficult. I don't want to minimize that. God doesn't minimize it. The psalmist doesn't minimize it. Why? Where do we see that? He, he picks it up, doesn't he? He talks about the weeping. He talks about the suffering. He talks about the deserts of life. He acknowledges that. He acknowledges that this is happening. Rather, instead of this fake, wishy-washy call to hope, he calls us to a hope that is grounded in God's works. What do I mean? It's grounded in a work that confronts the darkness and death, that confronts depression and depravity. We see this in verse 4. Look at this. This is a prayer, by the way. The Israelites are saying, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. Now, the Negev is this. It was a desert-like land. It was a desert-like land that would go for long periods of time without rain, waiting and waiting and waiting, and then all of a sudden, when it came, it came like a flash flood. It came all of a sudden. It became overwhelming. This is what Israel's praying for. They're praying for a flash flood. Why? What do they do? They, what do they do? Here they are. They're experiencing this desert. They're experiencing this hard time. And they cry out to God. They cry out to him. Why do they do this? This isn't the first time that Israel's cried out to God. In fact, we see this as the pattern of Scripture over and over and over again. We see this in the Exodus. Israel are slaves in, in Egypt. And here they are. They're being oppressed. What do they do? God says we're... He hears their crying. He hears the crying. We hear them in the wilderness. They're complaining after just being rescued. They're hungry. They're thirsty. They want something. What does God do? He hears their crying. And he sends manna from heaven, water from a rock. The cycle of judges. Israel sins. They experience the consequence of their sins. They cry out to God. What does God do? He hears them, and he raises up a judge, a redeemer, 
who will rescue them. This is the pattern of Scripture. This is what happens. This is just what God does. Israel's in trouble. His people, his children are in trouble. They cry out to him, and he answers. That's the kind of God he is. Listen, the same is true for us. God saw your situation. He saw the brokenness. He saw the sin. He saw your need. He saw that you couldn't help yourself, and he did something about it. He sent Christ, a real person, the God-man, to come down straight into the center of our lives, to take on the brokenness of this world, to experience it all. Why? Because this is what God does. This is what he does. This is who he is. God saw our brokenness and our need, and he sent Christ for us. And we get to look to that. Our evidence, our evidence for hope is the reality that God works. And we see the way he works in Christ. We see it in answered prayers. We see his mark and his goodness all along the way. We just have to look. We just have to look. He calls us to a hope that's not superficial, but a hope that is grounded in the reality of God's work. But he also calls us to a hope that is grounded in the reality of God's word and his promises and what he says. Why? Because God is trustworthy. What he says happens. He's never been wrong. This is who he is. Look at verse 5 through 6. He says, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is promise language. You hear that? It is certain simply because it comes from the word of God. It's a promise of joy, of reaping, of a home. God's promises are meant to call us to dream again. He calls us to live in the reality of God's works and his word and what he says. Now, I kind of was bashing on Disney World a little bit earlier. Here's the the thing, though. I think as adults, it is good for us to experience Disney World every once in a while. It is good for us to go and take our kids and grandkids, see them smile, to see them dream, to see them rejoice and excited, despite some of the complaining. It's good to see that. Why? Because our hearts need to be reminded of the reality of what God is doing. We need to be reminded of the fact that God is at work. And what he says will happen, will happen. I'm gonna, we need to be enthralled by God's works and his promises again. Here, let me, let me stir your imagination a little bit. This is God's word to you. He, he gives us a destination, a hope. If you are in Christ, you have a real hope, a certain hope. And he gives us this picture right here in Revelation. Revelation 21, 3 through 5. He says this. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, 
and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And I love what he says right here at the end. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Meaning you could take it to the bank. It's good as done. You can do whatever you want. You can flail. You can run. You can hide. You can keep him at an arm's length. Guess what? The story's written. Our hope is certain. We have that in the reality of his works and his promises. I'm going to end with this. It's a quote from C.S. Lewis's Weight of Glory. In this, he's talking about the present realities of pain and of suffering. He says this, At present, C.S. Lewis lamented, We are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and the purity of the morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the pleasures we see. Here's the part I want you to hear. But all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with rumor, rustling with rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. The door will be slammed open. It will be spread wide open. This is the beauty of the truth. So here's my question for you as as we leave God's word. Is this hope real to you? Is it real? Is it tangible? Is it concrete? Is it something you feel like you can take to the bank? And lastly, do you hear the rustlings of the rumors? The rumors of what is certain to come. Let's pray. Father God, we are in awe of you because you are a good God who intervenes, who comes into our lives, who enters right in the middle of the mess. And you answer us, just like you've answered us before. So Father, help us to to move towards you. Help us to cling to your very presence as we weigh through the wear and tear of life. Help us to hope again. Help us to trust again, to put our hearts on the line. Why? Because you deserve it, and you are worthy. It's in your name. Amen. In a second, we're about to sing a song, a psalm, a hymn that actually quotes the very psalm that we just talked about. So let us stand together and sing. We will feast in the house of Zion.
receive now the Lord's benediction that comes from Ephesians 2.20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen.